0: Steve Reno, editor of First Things Magazine, and I am here with you at the editor's desk the regular First Things podcast that talks about issues and themes and material in the latest issue of First Things Magazine. And I have with me Megan Basham, cultural reporter at The Daily Wire, to talk about her wonderful piece in the December 2022 issue, Prodigal Daughter. Welcome to the podcast, Megan.
1: Well, thanks for having me. Prodigal.
0: So you tell a story about the wayward Megan. (laughs) The
1: the, the young Megan was quite wayward, yes. Um, You know, I talked a little bit about, you know, my time in college. I, I have joked that because of that waywardness, I I am expert in instruct. I, I don't instruct young women, but if I wanted, I could instruct them on how to approach bouncers so as to gain entry to drinking establishments before 21, things of this nature, <laughs> whereas my, my English lit education was spotty during those years. So that was my major. I was an English lit major at Arizona State, which was famously regarded, well regarded for its party school.
0: So you majored in partying and minored in English literature.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yes. I would to say I, I think I think party girl is the technical term. Were you in a church background growing up? I was. So I grew up in kind of non-denominational, low Protestantism, but my parents were very faithful churchgoers. I was at church somewhat rebelliously pretty much every Sunday of my life, taken there by my parents. But, you know, the the spirit was not willing. The spirit went, but the spirit was not willing. So, yes, I was very much raised in the church. But as soon as I got to college, you know, that that went away. I quit going.
0: Sadly, uh, a common story I can It's also my story. And you, I was wonderful when I was reading this. It's just wonderful to read that a medieval poem sort of shocked you spiritually.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, well, it was surprising to me as well. But I mean, part of what I talked about in that piece was that there's this sense that we think that people who are engaging in the licentious life are having a great time, that prodigals are really enjoying themselves throughout all of it and at least in my experience i i think that's a misapprehension i think that you know in moments where i was most lucid i was aware that i was really unhappy i didn't feel great about myself or my behavior and when i came across this work which was the vulgate cycle of lancelot and the holy grail i recognized myself in it which was really fantastic to read this you know 13th century work and go that is me. I see myself in this work. And if you're not familiar, it's very different from the sort of Thomas Mallory ideal adulterous romance being really beautiful and fulfilling. It actually challenges Lancelot throughout. And th- I think that was what was so jarring to me was when I read it, I went, this is not the Lancelot story I'm familiar with. This is a Lancelot who's racked with guilt when he is confronted by religious hermits throughout the story, and he is confronted throughout the story, they don't glorify or romanticize his relationship with Guinevere. They call it base. They say he's filled with lust. So really not this noble ideal that we have. And in a way, it was actually even a little more earthy, right? Because it's very clear what's going on between Lancelot and Guinevere in ways that it isn't always in other incarnations of that story. So anyway, he's throughout the story confronted and convicted by these hermits who say, you know, God has lavished all of these blessings on you. You're handsome, you're wealthy, you're intelligent, you're brave, you're strong, all of these things, and you're using all of that to engage in your lusts. So that hit home. Let's just say that when I read that. So
0: you felt the word of judgment.
1: I did. I did feel the word of judgment. And at the same time, it was comforting to go, we are no different. We we like to think that we're more advanced or that we're somehow different from our forebears. And you see this work in the 13th century, you look around the campus of Arizona State. Most of us were raised in middle class to upper middle class homes in the freest and most prosperous nation in the world and this is what we're doing with those blessings. Yeah, we are we are a fictional Dupont University here. That's what we're doing.
0: Hmm. And so you found your way to a church.
1: I did. So I immediately started, well, I shouldn't say immediately. You know, I I can't remember. It's been some years, so I don't remember the exact process, but I I do remember very distinctly reading this, supposed to be working on my term paper and just Feeling overcome with conviction, and I actually went through the process of getting down on my knees to pray, which is a you know low church Protestant. I, we didn't really, we don't do that that much. Pretty dramatic. <laughs> I was very dramatic, so I did. And after that, you know, I, I can't remember if I just immediately started going back to church, but I I know that it was in that period of time of a few months that I started listening to a lot of sermons on the radio. I had a 30-minute drive to and from school. So I just started a regular rotation of sermons, and my mind was really suddenly focused on spiritual things. And that was when I started going to a church in Phoenix. And it was my parents' church, but I wasn't going there with them. I actually started going to my own service, getting involved in the college and career group, meeting people. Because I also realized like Lancelot, I need to start associating with different people if I'm actually going <laughs> to live a different life. So that was the next step. That was what I did.
0: The The term that really jumped out to me is hard truths. That that was the, the grace of, that's the gift that you got, which is most people think it's not a gift to get hard truths. It's hard because the word hard would suggest that, well, it's not just, it indicates that, these are kind of like whoa. These aren't mealy mouth or weak truths, they're hard ones. They're not yes. soft. But that was a kind of blessing you you said. That was the blessing of what you got from from this from the preachers and the
1: pastors of this church. Yes. And you know, it's funny because kind of connecting back to that Lancelot too, that was what these 13th century hermits were doing. They were confronting him. And he awoke to that. And I, that is what happened with me. I mean, one of the things that really sticks out was hearing a message on the conscience and this idea that if you are troubled with guilt, if you're plagued with guilt, that you need to take steps to not feel guilty. Well, there, you know, this particular pastor was telling me, yeah, the way you do that is to confess and stop sinning.
0: Repent. Yes. Repent. End yes. your life.
1: And I went, that was so different from sort of the therapeutic.
0: Yeah, firm. You need to be a firm, a firm, a firm, a firm.
1: And I did feel a lot better, by the way, after repenting and confessing and turning and changing my ways.
0: This is a kind of paradox that runs through the, the piece, which is that if you repent in order to feel better, it won't really work. But if you repent because, well, you really feel like you you have done wrong and you want to make yourself right with God, it does make you feel better. So if you aim it's something that comes as a consequence, but you can't aim at it.
1: That's that Lewis idea that if you aim at earth, you get neither earth nor heaven. But if you aim at heaven, you get both.
0: <laughs> Cause that's what comes out in, in you kind of change gears and you start talking about just as it is for you, Megan Basham. So also for our country. Right. I mean, we don't, go to church so that America will be a strong and and unified country. But if we do go to church, and if lots of people go to church, our country is in fact much stronger.
1: Well, and you know, it was funny because at that point in my life, you know, I was sort of hobbling my way through, look, you make a lot of problems for yourself when you're living that way. So I had a lot of mess to clean up as I was coming out of that period in my life. And I was not thinking about how do I be a good citizen. How do I become someone who, you know, like I said, can pay bills, can keep a job, who would be an attractive marriage? I was attractive in some ways, but marriage was probably not one of them. And I, you know, that made me someone who would be a worthy marriage partner, someone who could parent, someone who could be a mom. So as that process was going on, I was not thinking about those things, but as I look back now... With 20 years hindsight, I go, that was what happened in that period of time. So when you see the founders talking about how important it is to be a religious and moral people in order to have those blessings of liberty, well, that played out in my life in a way I wasn't thinking about it at the time. But I became someone who was able to raise kids, who who remembers to vote, who even knows what I'm voting about. Things of that nature. And that is just, you know, I talked about it as that is the side effect of what happens. And you read these writings of Washington and Hamilton and Jefferson, and it's become something of a cliche to talk about it. But there's a reason it's a cliche because it is true. It is true that. We are not fit for self-government when we are an immoral and licentious people because our thinking is disordered, our priorities are disordered, and we're not self-reliant. We're not capable of managing our affairs. So, of course, you have to lean on the government to manage your affairs.
0: Uh, Yeah, I think that that's so obvious that as we as a people become more dissipated and less capable of running our own lives, we just beg for the government to put guardrails and provide us with support.
1: Yeah. And, and we see that they're not providing guardrails. We're not seeing that in any fashion anymore. I mean, now, again, that affirmation culture has gone so far that we're now affirming, frankly, the most disordered kind of thinking. And how long can this endure?
0: Yeah, right. I'm, You know, 100,000 people drive, die of drug overdose and our policy response is to legalize marijuana. It's insane. Right. Has evangelicalism lost confidence in the hard truths?
1: Yes. (laughs) I will just state an unequivocal yes. You know, one of the things that has been interesting to me is to see the way we have adopted the language of the left. And even, I, I don't even know if they think of it as the left or right. I think it is the language of the prestigious. And that's what we've done. And I actually was listening to a podcast between you and Julia Yost that Really pointed that up to me where she was talking about a book on body trauma, I think it was. Mm -hmm. Yes. And as I was listening to it, all of those terms are the terms that are being thrown around the church and evangelicalism in a really glorifying way. And it was fascinating to go. I did some reporting on the SBC abuse report, a Southern Baptist convention, for those who aren't familiar. Yes. And the people surrounding that issue and the report itself highlighted almost exclusively adult interactions. And that was interesting one because adult interactions are messier. It's it's not as clear cut as mm-hmm. when you're looking at a child and an adult. So again and again, you heard about trauma. You heard a- abuse and trauma, but you didn't hear a lot of clear cut. What happened in these situations between a 26-year-old woman who was involved with a married professor for 12 years. What kind of abuse are we talking about? And, And they don't say. And it was even implied that it is so damaging for the alleged victims to have their allegations questioned, even to the nature of what are you alleging happened between you that you can't ask because it's traumatizing. And so what the call has been in that particular instance is that we need trauma-informed counselors and investigators to look into these issues where adults are involved because it will be so painful that we can't talk about it, which makes it very hard to get at truth.
0: Truth, justice, sin, that should be our vocabulary, not trauma and even abuse. It's, a, it's funny, that's a bit of a we, I mean, it's a strong word at one level, but it's, it's morally, it's not, a, it's not a traditional moral word. It suggests a kind of psychological, psychosocial, rather than, rather than a more traditional justice term. But it, this seems to be very widespread. Therapeutic language is, one of the things that anguishes me about the current pontificate is that the Vatican uses a lot of therapeutic language. And I have just an allergy for that language because it it it's an evasion of hard truths. It seems to me,
1: right. And that is kind of where I was going with that is that you know there are some words that are hard words. Rape is a hard word. Assault is a hard word. But we know what they mean.
0: Mm-hmm. And when
1: we don't use those words, it's very hard to get at what we're talking about. And so part of what bothered me as I was reading through that was going. It's also very difficult for someone to defend themselves when. The allegations are not clear. Mm -hmm. And so it's also very easy to suddenly make women incapable of offense, incapable of sin. And that's part of what I saw in that particular issue was that there was this suggestion if a pastor brought up, well, could we be talking about a Potiphar's wife situation? Since we are talking about two adults, there was immediate outrage over something that's biblical, that should be a legitimate question.
0: Yeah, I agree. Another angle that I want to explore, you point out that there's a tendency, it's on the left and the right, but there's a tendency to theologize our policy judgments. And and you've you recited a lot of that. And that concerns you. A tendency of evangelicals to, yes, you've got Donald Trump is um, uh, our King David or whatever it might be. And that strikes me as a kind of theologizing of your policy judgment about who the best candidate is, or who you know who you're going to vote for. But a lot of progressives do the same thing; they theologize their policy judgments in ways that that are very suspect.
1: Yeah. So you know, and I have done a lot of reporting in that particular space, and one of the things that just makes you cringe is going. If you want to argue about climate change, for instance, I think. That is an argument we can have on you show me the science, you argue for particular policies and legislation, but that isn't what we're seeing. So to give you one example that I referenced in this piece, the National Association of Evangelicals, which represents some 45,000 churches, put out a study on climate change activism, and their argument wasn't so much scientific or really scientific at all. The argument was that it had already been settled and that this is a matter Of loving your neighbor. And it was the same argument that we actually saw during COVID from a lot of churches was abiding by these COVID policies was a way to love your neighbor. And it suggested that if you don't lobby for things, it did get into legislation in this way, if you don't lobby your legislators for fossil fuel regulation, then you are failing to obey Christ's command to love your neighbor. And, you know, that that's definitely heaping some parasitical guilt there on people for something that's a very debatable issue that we can debate, sure. I don't think we need to debate it in those terms. And you also saw them using it in terms of it was the Great Commission. Part of the Great Commission is lobbying for climate change regulation because if you don't show that Christians are smart enough and plugged in enough to understand what's causing some weather changes, then that's going to damage the reputation of Christ, which is some pretty tortured logic there, I think.
0: Yeah, you talk about these are tactics of spiritual manipulation, and I think that's a real problem. But I, I also, in my years, I used to be an Episcopalian, and what I saw was this can function as a way of evading the hard truths. I mean, the hard truths really have to do with, like, what I do ninety percent of my time. You know, people who say, "Well, Jesus doesn't talk about sexual sins nearly as much as he talks about how we treat the poor." Well, fair enough. You know, f- for all of us, especially when we're young, we have to deal with the question of sexual sin. I mean, it's it's like intimate, whereas you know, the poor; these are policy decisions, and we ser- we should certainly try to think in a Christian way about it but that doesn't implicate us day in and day out most of us are not legislators right you know we vote we vote occasionally we should vote responsibly but we're not legislators and so i could see that there's a lot of way that social justice stuff and now climate justice stuff is a way of changing the subject from the things that really where god is judging me to things that are much more remote and and uh, as you point out subject to reasonable people can disagree about. So we can kind of hide from God's judgment in this all this social justice talk.
1: Well, and it's kind of funny because you go, <laughs> as they're talking about that, it's hard to imagine how in our particular era, all of the Bible's priorities and preoccupations for our time just happen to align with the wealthiest and most powerful institutions in our culture. That that just surprises me. I don't see that much throughout history. (laughs) but And yes, it does do that because you go, look, if you're at the National Association of Evangelicals and you want to lobby for climate change, you're not actually searching your own soul. You're not dealing with your own sin because you already agree that this is an issue that needs to be dealt with. But at the same time, they're not equipping people who are dealing with sin in their lives because we don't use words like perversion that the Bible uses. We don't use words like lust. We don't use words like natural function because those are offensive words in our culture. And yet that is the language that scripture uses. And so it's an easy way to dodge the things that are unpopular and that are offensive because the word is always offensive in order to say, well, actually it turns out that in this age, God wants us to prioritize getting a vaccine where God wants us to prioritize not driving a an SUV, things of that nature. And I, I think, man, those are the kind of things that do a, 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 a much less clear job, let's say, of getting at the troubles of your soul. I don't think people's consciences are seared or plagued because they're driving a, a, a Ford SUV over a Tesla.
0: I think I see a lot of disordered guilt in our secular society. I agree with you on that. And so, you know, uh, people's, I don't, I remember being in line for a cappuccino at a fancy coffee shop here in New York and the woman in front of me, she cross-examined the barista about the content of a muffin, (laughs) you know? I mean, she really wanted, and it was not just a health thing, it was like a deep moral kind of thing about the food content. And I just had to think, wow, that's a kind of misplaced, a misplaced moralism, you know, that you can be a, your your veganism satisfies your your intuitive moral sense that all is not well, and I need to discipline my soul. And but it's a kind of on the surface rather than going really to the lusts of our heart, you know, which are which are you know much more destructive than than our misguided political judgments. Or even our way.
1: <laughs> yeah, and that's been interesting to watch how sort of the rules and regulations of what it takes to be a quote-unquote good person in our modern 21st century Western culture are really piling up on us. And I do feel that people are buckling under the weight of all of this,
0: which is strange. Yeah, it's kind of. It's a Pharisaism, a political correct Pharisaism. It's pretty intense. I agree with you. I, I think young people really feel that burden very acutely. So it's paradoxical or the perversion of it is that it's it's a terrible burden, but it but if it if the burden actually spoke to the sort of deep needs of the soul, you could say, okay, well, it can be people can find God's grace and so on. But there's both no grace and it's superficial.
1: And it's continual. There there is no freedom from this in a sense. There you don't have a moment where, okay, your sins are forgiven, go forward. I mean you are you are forever making amends for not only your own sins, but past sins of your generation, past sins of your people who just happened to look like you 100 years ago or 200 years ago. And so just the, the constant having to sort of pay your alms for all the sins of ages heaping up on you.
0: You you kind of conclude and, and you you circle back to this fact that our society, our American project requires it requires the kind, it requires the hard truths that you encountered as a young person. Optimist, pessimist, how do you see, I agree with you completely. I I find myself thinking, ooh, the trend lines are not good.
1: Well, (laughs) I'm optimist in the sense that I don't think that, you know, the word is ever left without a witness, right? (laughs) The gates of hell are not going to prevail. So I, I think that ultimately, The word stands and there will be a faithful remnant. Now, how remnant we get, only God knows. But I do also think this that I am starting to see some justifiable and what I would call righteous anger and impatience with this kind of thing that we're seeing with this lack of telling the hard truths. Now, these are not people who tend to be in influential positions, a few are. And I see them pushing back in a way that they wouldn't have in the past and really in a way that may not have even been appropriate in the past. I do think we should have deference to our religious leaders. But there comes a point and I would point at Martin Luther and go, there comes a point where that 95 theses needs to be nailed to the wall. And I think a lot of people are rapidly approaching that point where they have had enough and they are demanding that kind of truth. And so you're starting to see people go, I want an explanation for that. I want an explanation for why You are using our money that we invest in your institutions and that we put in your offering plates to partner with, say, the WEF to push global climate initiatives. We want an explanation for that. And you're seeing some churches leave organizations over that. You are seeing the Presbyterian Church of America leaving the NAE over decisions like that. So I think that there has been something of a reckoning, and I think those fault lines are becoming clearer. And people are aligning on one side or the other, and so you know where it goes from here, I don't know. But for me, it is a positive development that we are now starting to acknowledge what the issue is.
0: Yep, I agree. I think people, one of the silver lining of the of the difficult age we live in is a lot of people are waking up and and realizing, like, whoa, no, I we need we need these we need the fundamental truths of the gospel, and not their pale limitations. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Well thanks so much for your piece and thanks for your your work and your witness.
1: Absolutely. Thanks so much for publishing it and for having me here.
0: Great, thanks.